You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for May 2021. What a busy month. Back in the first week of May, we were still wrapping up our stories from the Sky meeting and had barely put those to bed before our pre-coverage began for the American College of Cardiology scientific session. Interventionalists out there will know that this year's EuroPCR meeting kicked off the day after ACC wrapped up, which made for a long stretch of virtual news reporting. Hats off to my hardworking team at TCTMD for so many long hours spent watching late-breaking sessions and online press conferences in order to deliver the most important topics to you. Not to mention all the folks who support and promote our work behind the scenes. For the podcast this month, rather than trying to sum up ACC, which was the biggest of these meetings, I checked in with Dr. Douglas Drachman. Vice Chair of ACC's Annual Scientific Session Program Committee, to hear his top takeaways from this year's conference. Hi, Dr. Drachman. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me about the ACC gone by. Have you recovered yet? Oh, thank you so much, Shelley. Yes, I think I am officially recovered, and it's really a privilege to join you here today, especially on behalf of Pam Morris, the Chair of ACC 21, myself, of course, and the ACC education staff. It's really great to have a chance to step back and reflect on our experience uh, from earlier this week. Of course, this is the second virtual ACC. We're all hoping that we won't have to do this next year or down the road, but how did you feel about this year's meeting as, as compared to last? I think overall we were incredibly excited about it. As you, I'm sure, are aware, we originally planned for ACC 21 to be in person in Atlanta. Originally, it was scheduled for March, then because of the prevailing conditions of the pandemic, we deferred it to May 15th to 17th in the hopes that uh, the situation would have cleared effectively enough for us to meet in person. But as we approached the date uh, with a couple of months of lead time, we really appreciated that it wasn't going to be appropriate to try to host a meeting, no matter what types of social distancing and other uh, protective precautions we might take for a large-scale in-person meeting. So we, I would say, a now overused expression, we pivoted uh, to the to the virtual uh, format. And I was really impressed. You know, I think the ACC education staff and the whole team that plans meetings like this was extraordinarily gracious and effective in the way that they addressed this, you know, very dynamically changing terrain and were able to engage the entire planning committee all the participants in a way that I thought ultimately came across as really, really effective. We engaged ultimately over 1,400 faculty. There were more than 200 distinct sessions that were captured um, that included for us hot topics, guidelines, interdisciplinary education, global cardiovascular health, and topic essentials one and two. And at all times, you know, there was something going on and you could just click around and see what's happening now. Or you could dive into uh, really hundreds of additional lectures that were available in the pathway or on-demand application as well. So you could kind of pick and choose how you wanted to explore the content uh, as it was presented through the platform. So overall, thank you for asking the question. I think we were really happy with the way that um, that it turned out and the way we were able to present this, admittedly, you know, pivoting to this to this virtual reality that we that we all are addressing. Sure. And correct me if I'm wrong, but people can still, you've just taken some trouble to tell us about it, but people can still access that content for a bit longer, correct? 
Absolutely. All the, all the sessions that were available during uh, the actual live streaming, if you will, of ACC 21 are going to be available all the way through December 31st. And, you know, the, for those who haven't uh, signed up for the website, it still is wide open and available if they want to um, take advantage of it. And, you know, it's hard to have uh, only two eyes to follow as much as was happening, yeah, but to really go back and, yeah, absolutely. So going back now and kind of diving in and really exploring some of the content has been really gratifying. Okay. Well, I can't believe I'm letting you give a plug for that one. What I really want is people to go and read all of our news coverage of ACC because my team was so busy, just like your eyeballs. They managed to be in multiple places at once, it seemed, and, and covered a whole range of late breakers. But I'd love to hear from you of those, any that you're going to be implementing in practice, any results that will really change what you're doing now or, or um, perhaps change the direction of research down the road. Just a couple highlights for my audience. Yeah, there were many, I would say, and it's almost unfair to have to distill it down to just a couple because uh, I, I don't want to leave anything out uh, candidly. But um, the things that stand out in my mind, um, some from the opening showcase that will really stay with me a long time, um, include the Adaptable Study, one of our lead-off presentations by Skylar Jones, um, which was just such a neat concept and I think really powerful for us, uh, thinking mm -hmm. about novel, pragmatic, if you will, creative ways uh, to conduct uh, research moving forward. And in the study, uh, Dr. Jones and his colleagues were able to enroll over 15,000 subjects with uh, factors that enriched for heart disease from 40 centers in the US yeah. using the, the peak Cornet common data models. That's the patient-centered clinical research network. And, and this really leverages uh, existing data from electronic health records and can engage patients directly for patient reported outcomes um, and, and can explore their patient encounter records. Uh, to mine for some of the data. And this really kind of pragmatic, real-world approach allowed them to answer a, a really fundamental question of, you know, should patients be on 81 milligrams or 325 milligrams of aspirin? It's a question we have been asking for decades, if not honestly a century. And, yeah. you know, what they found that was interesting was that there was really no difference between the efficacy of taking 81 or 325 milligrams of aspirin in terms of death or hospitalization for myocardial infarction or hospitalization for stroke among these two groups. And there was really no difference in safety in terms of bleeding that required transfusion. It was really the same number, 0.6% in both, although admittedly about 40% or so of the individuals on 325 milligrams did cross over to the to the lower strength 81 milligram group. Yeah, but I, lots but I of really discussion. We had uh, lots of discussion in our story about that crossover issue and, and how to interpret the results with that. So I'd, I'll recommend that our, our listeners go and check out the full trial results for that. But uh, any others? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think, you know, another one that really has stood out in my mind is the left atrial appendage occlusion study or LAOS uh, 3, uh, which was also simultaneously published in New England Journal. And in this study, uh, the investigators tried to look at this sort of age-old question of whether a patient is known to have atrial fibrillation and is undergoing cardiac surgery for some other reason should also have occlusion, surgical occlusion um, of the left atrial appendage. And it, it, it's a surprisingly uh, challenging issue to have been addressed. There are kind of small scales studies looking at uh, patients undergoing surgery in the past that showed some mixed results. We've had a growing body of literature looking at percutaneous devices to close or exclude the left atrial appendage that have shown a great deal of promise and efficacy uh, recently, but these can be uh, costly devices. It's a separate procedure. And so the really fundamental question of, you know, while they're doing the surgery for some other issue, in many cases, valve surgeries, 
uh, for these patients. And, and patients with valvular disease were not examined for left atrial appendage percutaneous closure devices. Um, you know, patients undergoing these surgeries to see if it could be uh, additionally beneficial for them to undergo left atrial appendage occlusion, probably in addition to long-term anticoagulant therapy. And what they found in reviewing the data from 2,300 patients uh, who were involved in this study over a mean of about 3.8 years was that the stroke rate in those who had the left atrial appendage occluded was 4.8%, whereas those who did not have occlusion of left, left atrial appendage, it was 7.0%. So there's really a relative risk reduction of about 33% in these patients to undergo this left atrial appendage occlusion at the time of surgery. And I think that's really got the potential. I'm not a surgeon, and I think obviously there, the decisions and how and when this is done are going to be individualized to the patient, but I think that this offers a real opportunity to change or influence practice, or at least the conversations with our patients moving forward. So that's another one that I found, you know, really gratifying to, to, to observe and, and really kind of learn at the moment that it was being uh, released and, and presented. Yeah, we've been waiting for those results for quite some time, actually. So it's always nice when you've been referring to this upcoming enrolling trial, whatever it is, and then you see the results and, and to have them be so dramatic, which they were for that one. Others? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a vascular specialist and an interventionalist, and so I was really waiting with bated breath for the results of the Radiance Hypertension Trio uh, study uh, that was uh, presented by Ajay Kirtane and is simultaneously published in The Lancet. And this has been a, a, a sort of long and hotly debated topic, whether a, a use of an endovascular treatment approach to address from the endoluminal surface of the renal arteries and, and effectively ablate or disrupt the function of uh, the, the renal nerves, which can sort of transmit signals from the kidneys to the central nervous system and also impact the sort of adrenocortical axis that controls blood pressure in the body. So if renal denervation can really exert effect to reduce hypertension in our patients and, and obviously huge potential population of patients who have hypertension. And what was interesting specifically about Radiance Hypertension Trio was that they very rigorously um, assessed patients for refractory hypertension. So these are patients who were uh, you know, often on three or more um, antihypertensive medications and in order to be enrolled in this study, they were effectively placed on a, a poly pill. Um, so they were on, on, on a, a three-drug uh, pill to control their blood pressure. Um, and then in these patients, they were randomized in addition to taking this pill to be uh, either treated with renal denervation using this novel ultrasound-based device, so an ultrasonic wave uh, from the, the endoluminal surface of the renal artery to ablate the nerve function versus a sham procedure and then to yeah. see what their ambulatory blood pressure was up to, to two months out after uh, the treatment was um, instated. And they found that actually there was a significant reduction uh, in blood pressure in the patients treated with the renal denervation by about eight millimeters of mercury reduced compared with uh, three millimeters reduced in the sham control group. Uh, so, you know, I think that the conclusion of the authors that renal denervation might be an effective adjunctive therapy rather than the addition of more medical therapies is one that's really thought-provoking and one that I think will uh, influence the way that we look at these patients and that renal denervation as a treatment approach in, in, in particular. 
Yeah, it's really a, a comeback story because there was just so much, I will say, hype about it in the past and leading up to the simplicity trial that was so disappointing many years ago now. But I, what I really noticed with Radiance when uh, Dr. Courtenay presented it was just how many patients they screened in order to get down to the number that they felt were actually eligible for the procedure, which I think is another message, is it not, that, that you do need to do what you can to get these people to get to the right levels, be it through lifestyle albeit through actually taking their meds and that type of thing. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it goes without saying that when we're dealing with hypertension for our patients, what these uh, you know, rigorously adjudicated, monitored, and managed clinical studies show us that it really takes a lot of perseverance, a lot of communication with the patients, a lot of oversight of hypertension and the up titration, if you will, of the medications that they're taking to control their blood pressure. And that can often be uh, highly effective. So sometimes even the control group that we're comparing any, comparing any of these novel therapies against will show such significant reductions of their blood pressure that it is you know, important to remember in the real world that a, a lot can be achieved, but it takes a lot of perseverance. But I yeah. think um, also the rigorous sort of screening of patients for these trials to find those who still have refractory hypertension, despite these best efforts, this could be a really exciting uh, adjunctive therapy to consider in certain select patients. Sure. I mean, almost intentionally, Radiance also showed the value of a polypill in, in a hypertensive group because the patients did quite well just having to take a single pill. I'd also just love to ask about some of the um, COVID-19 and the heart sessions. Se several were in a featured clinical research session, but how important is it, do you think, just generally for, for that type of content to be in a meeting like the ACC scientific sessions? Are people still concerned about COVID and its effects on the heart or COVID and its effects on, on practicing physicians? There was a burnout analysis that was presented, but you know, you chose to include and highlight those sessions as well. I think that this is such an incredibly important and effectively a timeless you know, issue. Not that I, I hope and pray that COVID-19 itself is not a timeless scourge or problem for us in the world, but rather I think the lessons that we've learned uh, from addressing uh, the pandemic, I think will stick with us. I hope um, in some ways the, the silver lining lessons um, indefinitely. So that was a huge uh, area of, I think, priority for us. I think that the past year has caused us to really reflect on so many aspects culturally, societally, and certainly medically uh, about the impact of the pandemic, but what it tells us even about the fabric of our society. And something that we really um, you know, took to heart um, in the planning of ACC 21 was the importance of, of diversity and inclusiveness kind of throughout the, the, the paradigm, if, if you will, of how we structured all of our sessions. And certainly as we focused on the COVID-19 uh, intensive as well, uh, both with respect to um, gender, racial and ethnic diversity, geographic, even global inclusion, if you will. So the perspectives, including sessions called Global Health Spoken Here, um, including members of the cardiovascular team, including early career members and fellows in training. And I think all of this you'll see was really baked into every single session uh, throughout the entire ACC 21, but it was something that was really, I think, exemplified um, so beautifully uh, in the uh, COVID-19 intensive. And our focus was not so much to dive into the nitty gritty of uh, COVID's impact specifically just on the heart, but rather the lessons that we learned from addressing the pandemic as, as a cardiovascular community. And so you'll see uh, in that session that there was a focus on leadership in times of crisis 
and characteristics that, that help to kind of promote steering a, a ship or, or the group of cardiovascular professionals that we work with uh, through the troubled waters of the pandemic. It was very interesting for me to hear uh, Tal Zaks, the, the CMO of Moderna, uh, provide a narrative history of the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. So that sort of perspective from industry about the trials and tribulations of bringing something so incredibly vital, uh, important and timely to the forefront in the history of this, this mm. process, I thought was absolutely fascinating. We heard from uh, Julie Damp uh, from Vanderbilt about um, education through video conferencing. So other ways in which we kind of bridge the gap and continue to, to reach out to one another, but also to our trainees uh, during the pandemic and, and continue to impart sort of vital education. So there wasn't just this, this gap during the time that they otherwise would have been learning as fellows and training. And then finally, but absolutely not least um, in this manner, was Michelle Albert, who had been a co-fellow with me actually at Brigham and Women's Hospital many years ago and, and is now really one of my academic heroes uh, from UCSF, who provided the Lewis F. Bishop uh, keynote lecture that was entitled Defining Priorities, Bringing Health Equity to the Front Lines of Cardiovascular Healthcare. So I think such an incredibly timely and also timeless message that I think we really have focused on during the past year of the pandemic, but has been so vitally important to us, I think, for years well before and certainly many to follow uh, afterwards so that we can all strive to provide equitable care to the patients that we serve. Just hearing you speak about it, I mean, I was focused on the actual scientific research presentations, but the session you're describing is one that was completely off my radar, which is a reminder uh, that when we cover these virtual things as journalists, we're focused on the things that we think we can get quote unquote stories from. Whereas when I'm attending in person, I actually do wander into different sessions or, or target these more big picture kind of ideas type things, which is just a reminder of how much it would be great to be back at an in-person meeting. But I think also your point is that COVID-19, in addition to the fast pace of the science, has really been that litmus test for um, racial disparities across healthcare. And it sounds like that session really touched on those. So one to go back and check out for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I can't keep you on the line here for any longer, I don't think, but I, I really hope that people do uh, take your advice to check out the ACC platform and everything else this meeting had to offer. And, and hopefully I'll get a chance to see you in person some year soon. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Shelley. We're certainly hoping that uh, ACC 22 is going to be in person in DC in early April of next year. We're planning on that, but you, you can bet your bottom dollar that we're also focused on how to accentuate the learner's experience through all the lessons that we've learned from providing virtual format at ACC 21. So I think that while we all thrive with interpersonal connection, the ability to network and engage one another directly, I think that we've learned a tremendous amount and hopefully we will use these uh, sort of items of necessity as we move forward uh, throughout our careers as educators, scientists, and uh, clinicians. Absolutely. If you think about the global reach of what you've been able to do and other conferences are doing in terms of who could actually attend a meeting, I think that has such a global impact as well. So um, I take your point. Thank yeah, you so thank much. You. Thank you for inviting me, Shelley. It's really been a privilege and an honor. No, it's all mine. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, that is just a tiny taste of ACC 2021. I feel like I only scratched the surface with Dr. Drachman, and we didn't get to talk about the many more trials that will also have an impact on research or practice. I'll highlight host exam, strengthening the case for clopidogrel monotherapy rather than aspirin post-dapt after PCI. 
Paradise MI, showing no benefit to Secubitril Valsartan as compared with the NACE inhibitor for cutting the risk of heart failure or cardiovascular death immediately after an MI. Then there was RAFT-AF, suggesting that ablation-based rhythm control was no better than rate control for reducing mortality or heart failure events in people with atrial fibrillation and heart failure, although that trial was stopped early for futility. We also got the full results from the ACTION trial, which, to the disappointment of many, failed to show a benefit of full-dose anticoagulation using rivaroxaban for people hospitalized with COVID-19. And there were many, many more. Find all of the biggest news from ACC 2021, as well as a new one-on-one -on -one interview series led by our senior clinical editor, Mamas Mamas, by clicking on the conference tab on TCTMD. The conference tab is also where you'll find all of our coverage of EuroPCR. I can tell you by the time EuroPCR rolled around after what seemed like a full week of ACC, I felt like I'd taken a transatlantic flight to Paris, then sat on the tarmac for 12 hours before stumbling into the first leg breaker. Certainly the French fashion police would not have allowed me into the country based on my attire at that point. Check out the EuroPCR page for updates on mitral valve repair, ultra-slim drug-eluting stents, a new subcutaneous GP2B3A inhibitor, a new thinner strut bioresorbable scaffold, and much more. I really hope I and my team can be back at these meetings in person to really do them justice next year. I know many of you feel the same. For now, rolling into June, we hope to keep up our remote conference coverage, checking out the European Atherosclerosis Society Conference early in the month, then the European Heart Failure Congress towards the end. As usual, if you have any feedback on any of our coverage, or if you have story tips, complaints, praise, or pushback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter as ShellyWood2, or via my bio on the website at tctmd.com. For now, thank you for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.